stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Come on, boy. <laughs> Sorry about that. Listening in Cairo, Egypt, Chimpote, Peru, and Modesto, California, I am your Marquis de Podcast Deluxe. The Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast, a podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming, a podcast meant to be listened to as you are painting your figs and building your terrain. It's the damn good book, Hogan. Shakespeare, sir. Julius Caesar. Mark Anthony. Lend me your ears, eh? These many, them shall die. Their names are pricked. A general who wins battles and lives to claim the credit. I'll never laugh for enemies in London, sir. I will tell you, I don't even know where to start right now. I have so much going on in my melon. It's giving me a headache. I'm recording this now as Hurricane Ian is off uh, the coast of... Uh, just, it just passed by Havana, and it's it's, it's threatening to Florida. So I'm kind of going, ah, I might as well get this recorded and, and, and ready to go. So when you're listening to this, I may be flooded. Who knows? Bring it. I've been so through through so many hurricanes. I've been through Michael and Matthew, and let's see, there was Amy, there was Andrew. Andrew, that was that was a beast. Um, yeah, I've been so I've been through David. So there've been through so many hurricanes. I'm just like, okay, bring it. What do you got? I don't even know where I'm going to start. But I will say this: a little bit later, I will be reviewing the 1979 classic Zulu Dawn. And as always, I take the war gamer's perspective. I'll be answering your emails, presenting the top five, and also presenting a forgotten radio classic that fits the theme of the show. I will not be having a new scenario for you this episode. So scenario builders, uh, I'm going to take a time out for this episode for scenario builder because after playing Blood and Steel at Huracan, which I'll get into in a second, it's made my mind melt a little bit because I've thought to myself, how am I going to adapt this? Because I want to be able to present you a scenario where you can adapt it to different war games. Now, I've been using the the Men Who Would Be Kings, who's which still is a, a game I'm really familiar with and I, I like playing. And that's why I've been presenting you with. But I want to be able to provide you with a scenario that is adaptable to several different uh, war games. I'm going to put my Brainiac hat on and I'm going to think about this and see what I could do to uh, make it a little more adaptable. So we're going to take a timeout for Scenario Builder for this episode. Now, for the main point of this episode, and by request, this episode's highlight, I'll be presenting a synopsis of Wargaming, The Scramble for Africa. But first, I'd like to talk about Huracan 2022 in Orlando. I was finally able to get back to a Wargaming convention. The last one I was at was uh, Gen Con at Broward Community College back in 1986 or 87, one of those years. But it was a while, a while ago. And I have to tell you, I was kind of nervous. I was kind of nervous because I didn't know what to expect because I hadn't been to a convention in so long. The blessing was I was able to get at least one day off from work, and I had to pick one of those days. And so I thought, okay, well, Friday's a good day. People like to game on a Friday. I'm going to do a Friday. And when I got to uh, Huracan, uh, some fantastic games going on. Also, Edgar Pabon and Damien McComer were running their demo for Blood and Steel, which I really wanted to, to sit down and play and get to understand the rules because 
there's something about uh, Firelock games that uh, sparks the imagination. Um, and since I had Edgar and Damien on the program, I promised him I was going to come and play and sit down and uh, you know see the game in action. And I wanted to say, I did it. I did what I said I was going to do. So Edgar and Damien were uh, fantastic. Uh, my opponent uh, for this game was uh, a new friend of the podcast, Gary Morales. What a, a, a fantastic and smart young man. Uh, let me tell you that. I was very, I was like, I just wanted to hand him all my miniatures and go, young man, please take these and run. Be young. Because the average age of uh, war gamers, you know, this is like in the 70s. And so to see a young man really get into um, really get into war gaming, I was really I was like, yes, yes, we're in good hands. We're in good hands, everybody. Uh, I did post pictures of uh, some games that I found really, really interesting. Bordino Austerlitz. Also, there was an early World War One uh, ocean battle and a Wild West game uh, along with the ACW game. But friend of the podcast, Mark Coolidge who he ran a game the day after I w- I left. I was so furious with it. I was like, nah, I can't believe this. I missed this. Mark Coolidge, a friend of the podcast, ran a Spanish-American game that <laughs> that looked absolutely amazing. Um, I'm going to ask him uh, to post some pictures of that game to the Shot and Shield uh, podcast Wargaming group on Facebook so you can see those as well. Also, I saw pictures of a huge Russian colonial versus British colonial great game board that looked fantastic. And I'm, ah, I'm so like, I'm, I'm verklempt that I missed it. So I'm not really happy about that, but Hey, you know, what are you going to do? I also have uh, a video that you can watch on YouTube, uh, of like sort of reports. It's got like 30 minutes long, but I I will tell you something. There's a reason I like radio. There's a reason I like audio video. Not so much. I have to tell I, I, we did, we did the video in 4K. Now, I'm not a video guy, but look, I don't know 4K from Polaroid. As I'm sitting down after the uh, after uh, my wife and I got back from Huracan, sat down at the computer, we uploaded everything. It took forever to upload to the uh, to the system. I started doing a little edits, adding a few things. It took get this, it took literally 13 hours to compile. Like I, my computer was running for 13 hours straight to get all this into one, into, into one file. And I'm like, I got, I'm doing something wrong. I'm doing something wrong. And then I go and watch it as you did. And you're thinking to yourself, why is that over that? Why is that so weird? I, uh, I just, <laughs> I like radio so much better. Oh, uh, that was a horror. That was a horror. I'm not good at that. <laughs> But if you do want to see it, just search out Shot and Shield in YouTube, and uh, you'll see it. There's a link on the Twitter and also in uh, the Facebook group. So there you go. Um, also, I want to I want to thank Edgar, Damien, and Gary for a great game. Uh, my wife uh, Sherry uh, for being a partner in crime and, and taking some uh, film and some great pics just for me to mess up in the editing process. Uh, finally, Dominic over at uh, HMGS south uh, for the hospitality and the passes so i could do this report and uh, and, and get in there and kind of see what was all going on so very 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 good uh, you know as, as you know from the show i'm very passionate about colonial and 19th century war gaming i'm very passionate about it i love it and this has been the focus of all the pictures i took and um and the reports and everything that uh that we have going on 
uh, with the podcast. But at Huracan, there was so much more going on. There was a Pathfinder Games, a big old tournament going on, a World War II tournament going on. There were some pirates. There were some Space Wars, cool air combat games. Uh, great vendors. So it was uh, it was an overall fantastic experience. Uh, to do one day, I was I I was like, oh, I don't know. I can't I can't do that. I can't do just one day again. I'm gonna have to go and do the full the full gamut, the full four day, because I I felt like I felt less than when I walked away. So, but uh, it was a great time. Uh, it seemed like everybody was having a, just an outstanding time. And seeing some of the reports that uh, people uh, provided, uh, it seems like they had a great time too. So uh, applaud. Absolutely. Great, great uh, convention. Uh, like I said, I haven't been to one since the 80s. Uh, so this was a very, very nice treat. And I, liked, I, I was going to say I'd like to thank my job for not calling me in, but I turned my phone off. And I told him that uh, I was dead. And then the next day, I told him I got better. All right, so let's get into the show. It's time for emails on Shot and Shield. Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington, D.C. calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, sir. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. Okay, if you'd like to uh, send me an email, it's uh, shotandshield at gmail.com. You can also hit uh, hit me on the Twitter at Shot and Shield or on the uh, Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming uh, Facebook group on uh, well Facebook. There you go. Uh, first email comes from Matthew. Uh, he did not say where he was from, but Matthew writes, "I recently stumbled upon your podcast, and I am most impressed." Well, thank you, Matthew. I have played war games all my life thanks to my dad. But I recently became interested in 19th century colonial war gaming after purchasing the men who would be kings. I plan to use these rules with my 10 millimeter miniatures. First off, 10 millimeter, so small, so small. 54 millimeter, so big, so big. <laughs> anyway, Matthew continues, your podcast is providing uh, to be a valuable resource already as I am planning on watching the film Gunga Din based on your review. I would love to see more content about the Scramble for Africa, the Anglo-Zulu War, and the Boxer Rebellion in future, if you could. Uh, Matthew, thank you very much for the, uh, for the email and uh, the love. Okay, so first off, Scramble for Africa, as uh, you've already heard in the opening part of the show, uh, that is going to be the highlight today, uh, the Scramble for Africa. It is a beast because you're talking about a whole continent. You're talking about the Moroccan area. You're talking about the Egyptian area. You're talking about Sudan. You're talking about South Africa. You're talking about the Congo. You're talking about Zanzibar and Madagascar. So you're talking, it's a big, vast area. And that's kind of tough. But I'm going to try to jump into some of the basics. As far as the Box Rebellion goes and Anglo-Zulu War, uh, Anglo-Zulu, today's movie review is going to be Zulu Dawn. So there you go. I appreciate... That your dad um, got you into into wargaming. I, I really, really do. Uh, the way I got into wargaming was I was just kind of I, I loved building models. I built model ships, and then I would go to the to the hobby shop, and I'd see these miniatures. I see the little one seventy second scale Airfix figures, and I think to myself, "Oh, that's kind of cool." And I get them. You know, I watch the movies, and then I thought, "Hey, this is a game," because I would look at some books, and all of a sudden, boom, boom, boom. And it wasn't until I met uh, a friend, his name is Steve Barona. I have not seen him 
or talked to him since the 80s because uh, I ended up moving on to college. He was the one who actually said, hey, this is a game. This is how it looks. This is what's going on. He's a great guy, or maybe he was a great guy. I have not been able to find him on the Facebook. I haven't been able to find him at all. So he was much older than me. So he was uh, in his uh, 30, late 30s, I think, when I was in my teens. But a uh, really great guy, and he was the one who kind of focused me and helped me understand what uh, what a war game was. So, Matthew, uh, thanks to your dad for showing you this game, because that's fantastic. So, and uh, well done, and thank you for being a listener of the podcast. All right, let us continue on. Uh, Harold in Colorado writes, You put pictures up of you playing U.S. Civil War. What gives? I thought you hate ACW. Are you a closet confederate? LOL. All right, so look, it's not my theater of choice. As I've said, and you've heard this on the podcast many times, when it comes to ACW and World War, uh, World War II, I'm over it. I'm done. I've had it. I, I've, I've played those games. I've been involved in those games, and I'm, I'm done. Matter of fact, uh, World War II, it's like anything that has to do with Europe, I don't care. Now, anything that has to do with ACW, normally I don't care. But hear me out. One of my goals in going to Historicon uh, 2022 here was to play Blood and Steel with Edgar and Damien and understand those rules. I can't tell them, and I wouldn't tell them, and I wouldn't tell anybody what kind of games to play, what kind of theater to play, what kind of action to run. And if they're going to do ACW, because they're passionate about it, because other people are passionate about it, that's the thing. It's like, look, Real quick, I'm not take. I'm not saying that ACW isn't a valid game to play. Okay, I'm just saying that you know I'm not going to have in my collection anything ACW. That's what I'm saying, and it's not because I hate it or I think it's uh, less than or whatever. I'm just um I, I did ACW for 20 years, and I I just I'm I get it, I get it, and I want something new. I want something more exciting, other than you know ACW. This is just Scott. This is me. This isn't for you or this isn't for anybody else who loves ACW. You love ACW. I respect that. I really do. I wanted to understand the rules of Blood and Steel. That was the game they were running. So guess what? Guess what I'm doing? I'm playing. I'll, I'll play. I'm not against playing because I'm more interested in playing the game than I am really at this point about who's playing who, if it's Confederates versus Union or Union versus Confederate or whatever. Okay, so it's all good, but that's but that's why I posted those pictures. That's why I played that game to understand and learn the rules. At the whole, I have to tell you, at the whole the whole time, I'm playing Blood and Steel, uh, and I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm thinking to myself, how am I, how could I take this game and adapt it to the theater of my choice? What could I do? Could I, you know, is is this pivotal? This if 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 the the rules and the uh, the attributes of the Union soldier does that is that equivalent to my game of choice or my theater of choice, Central Asia? Would, would that work with Russian colonials? How would that how would that go? What would what would a Kashgari or a Kievan archer be like in this particular game? And so that's what I was thinking, as well as playing the game and understanding the game as it was going on. So, Harold. No, I'm not. I don't hate ACW. I just, I've just, I've just played it out in in myself. 
So outside of learning the rules of Blood and Steel, that's not something I'm gonna. I'm not gonna own ACW in my collection, or or anything that has to do with Europe, World War II. It doesn't mean I'm against it. Doesn't mean that I think that uh, you all should stop doing it. I think you play the game that you love. That's it. Okay. So I hope that answers your question, Harold. All right. Next email from Tantum in Varanasi, India. I hope I pronounced that correctly. If I didn't, don't don't give me too much of a hard time. Uh, Tantum writes, Lord Scott, can you explain why you do movie reviews if you are a War Gamers podcast? You know what? Can I tell you? That's a great question. That is an absolutely fantastic question. Yes, there are several reasons why I do this. One, to be able to bring you a War Gamers perspective to a movie that represents the period that I cover in the show. That's number one. Number two, I do it to bring in different voices than mine droning on and on and on. If you just hear my voice for a couple hours, you're going to be like this. Oh, my God. This guy's killing me right now. This guy's killing me right now with his voice. He just keeps talking and talking and talking. You see what I'm saying? So I use the movie review to bring in clips and different voices and everything to break it up. And what happens is it actually is supposed to help the flow of the show. This is something I learned uh, when I was in radio is that you can have one person talking, but if you have clips and sound effects and you have stuff like that, that helps the flow of the show. And so that's why I do it. That's another reason why I do it, I should say. So that's number two. Number three, it creates some discourse. If if someone hates my review or someone likes my review, I'm going to hear about it because I'm going to get an email and it's going to be like, oh, you suck or oh, that's great. Yeah, I should watch that. Which, Tantum, let me tell you something. And that's why I read this email here because it brings me to my next email. So thank you very much, Tantum, for the email. But the next email is Reginald in West Virginia. And he writes, Scott, you're not a lord. So I don't know why you're pretending to be one. I took great offense to your Gunga Din movie review. It is a horrible movie and not representative of anything truly colonial. You should refrain from doing any further movie reviews in the future. (laughs) Yes. So look, you're probably wondering why I would read an email like that. Look, if you disagree with me, I have no problem with that whatsoever. This is where I liked, I, I, can I tell you, I like disagreement. And actually as a manager, as a boss at work, I like it when an associate or an employee comes up to me and says, you know, I think you suck. I think you're a jerk. I don't like the decisions you make because for me, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity for me to get you on board. It's an opportunity for me to express my opinion on why this is a good thing or a bad thing or, or, or whatever my opinion might be or whatever my thought process might be. It's a chance for me, an opportunity for me to get you on board. So Reginald, let me take this opportunity to try to get you on board. Okay, first, Reginald, I know I'm not a lord. It's a joke. It's a joke. Of course, I'm not a lord. I'm not a duke. I'm not a marquee. I'm a Scott. That's it. That's what I got. As far as uh, Gunga Ding goes, being a horrible movie, you're absolutely right to have your opinion of the movie. I disagree. I find it to be one of the best adventure movies ever. I like the actors. I like the action. I I like the bad guys. 
there's just so much about you know i like the acting in it as well um i like that it takes me away it's an escapist type uh, movie so you know what if you don't like it that's absolutely fine uh, no no worries you don't have to you don't have to watch it you know now in regards to me doing movie reviews next the british cross into zulu territory and get their stiff upper lips slapped off the 1979 classic zulu dawn in this episode's movie review is next this is shot and shield good luck against those elephants from the land of the audio to the world of the visual the shot and shield podcast is on youtube i use youtube for supplementary information such as watch along videos documentaries of interest Movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out in parentheses, shot and shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, shot and shield and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to shot and shield on YouTube. This is Shot and Shield. You don't think I, too, dream of peace? You don't think I, too, yearn to end this damn dirty job we call soldiering? Frankly, no. All right, let me start with this. When I was growing up, my mom signed us up for HBO. At the time, uh, 1980-ish, okay, and HBO would play a lot of the same movies over and over and over again. I watched the four seasons with Alan Alda and Carol Burnett 400 times. It's probably why I like Vivaldi now. All right, And if you've seen the four seasons, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. One of the other movies that HBO played over and over and over again was Zulu Dawn. This movie was the reason for my first foray into colonial wargaming because I was so impressed with how the Zulus were portrayed in this film. So let's get to it. The 1979 classic Zulu Dawn. This movie is about the run-up to the invasion of the Zulu nation by colonial British forces and those forces being practically wiped off the face of the map at Iswandalana. Now, I will tell you, me saying the word Islandawanda, I'm not sure if I said it correctly, but if I did, great. If I didn't, do not crucify me. It's not fair. I want to establish camp here immediately. Certainly, sir. After lunch, Brown, I want you to return to Islandawana and instruct Colonel Pulleen to join us here immediately. If you'll excuse me, my lord. No appetite, Colonel? My men haven't eaten since yesterday, and there won't be any supplies until I get them back to Islandawana. Then they can start off now, and you can join them when you've eaten. Kind of you, my lord, but I don't think it would be proper for me to sit at your table if they were there. Bellies stuck to their backbones. Excuse me, sir. Learn nothing from that Irishman, Harford, except how not to behave. 
This movie is star-studded. Peter O'Toole, Burt Lancaster, Simon Ward, Denholm Elliott, Bob Hoskins, Peter Vaughn, James Faulkner, Nicholas Clay, Ronald Lacey, Freddie Jones, Donald Pickering, so many others. When you watch this movie, you're going to be like, I I know that guy. I I know that guy. I know that guy. I know that girl. I know that guy. I know that guy. It's just one of those type of films where there's so many stars in it. And some stars, you're like, hey, you know, I remember that guy. I'll give you an example. Nicholas Clay. Okay. He was Lancelot in Excalibur. He was in an episode of Sherlock Holmes, The Redheaded League. He was Patrick Redfern in Evil Under the Sun. And when you watch that movie, you think to yourself, man, this guy has some cheeks. You hear me? So, I mean, these are not bad actors. These are not people that are no names. These are people that are in other films that you know. opening scene is ominous. An army of Zulus running in front of a burning Africa sun. Excellent. It sets the whole tone. So I'm not going to explain the movie step by step, but that the first time you watch it, it seems like a rip-roaring adventure. Then the second time you see it, you start thinking about the folly of war. The third time you watch it, you start to view the Zulus as the hero of this movie. After that, you know they are. Because the British are so stupid. I'm sitting there watching this. This It's probably like the 300th time I've watched it. But after the fourth time, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, how could you guys be so dumb? Excuse me, my lord. Norris Newman of the Standard, my lord. I saw you lead our cavalry, sir. Indeed, I did, my lord. I was one of the first to cross. Were they in good heart as they entered enemy territory? They spurred onto the high ground, my lord, full of spirit and looking for the Zulu. Full of sport, they were. Tell what you see, write it well, sir, and make sure you get it right. If I've got it right, my lord, you lead an invasion into Zululand, for I see it all around me. But why is the question my readers will ask? Why? Do not confuse yourself. Why? We must strike a heavy blow. This cannot be a war of maneuver. So, attack is your defense. Well, let's hope Chetsweo will offer his impis for destruction. I'm not sure what the movie makers intended for this movie. If it was meant to have a hero and a villain or just show history. So I will uh, view it as the movie makers attempt to portray history. Because for a historian, I believe it shows what happens when you underestimate your opponent and then make your plans at garden parties. Right? Ah, General. Do you find our border country congenial, my lord? Landscape most congenial, ma'am. As a border, vulnerable. Do you really think Tetsuya will attack us? The intention of the Zulu Impi and their king concern me deeply, ma'am. Tetsuya has no intention of attacking at all, Mrs. Pretorius. Unless he's given no option. He has no quarrel with us. How rare to meet a young lady 
interested in tactical matters, Mr. Lindsay. Is it not, Sir Henry? Most rare. You are talking of a violent and murdering barbarian who commands an army of 30,000 warriors just across the river. My father has known and lived with the Zulus for many years. Ketchwile massacred 20,000 of his own people to make himself king. The English Tudor kings did no less. Much later in our nation's history, I might add, and the French much more recently. That may well be, Your Grace, but be that as it may, my duty is clear. The defense of all this, Natal. For the wargamer, there's a lot to take from this movie. The uniforms and the gear are extremely accurate. The Zulus, uh, the married troops versus the unmarried troops are, are well-defined. The British troops are accurate. The terrain is spot on. I have a friend uh, in South Africa. He, he told me that the terrain in South Africa is portrayed accurately in the movie. So you got that going for you. The other thing that I like uh, you to make note when you watch this movie is the tactics of the Zulu in this movie. It was really well done and very, very accurate. When you play the Zulus in your war game, you need to make sure that the rule set that you're, you're using allows for the Zulus to use their speed and ground cover. It's ingenious how they use terrain to their advantage. Also, you know, I'd like to make a quick note about painting. Personally, I like to use flats all the time. Flats all the time. But there is one exception when I use gloss, and that is for the skin of Zulus. A gloss represents the sweat. They look fantastic, and it looks really, really good on the game board. January 1879, Lord Chelmsford's army crosses into Zulu territory. Their object, to destroy the Zulu forces. There, stretched out is my Lord Chelmsford's army. What a wonderful adventure we undertake. So for this episode, I'm going to give this movie two scores. For the Wargamer, it's absolutely a five pith helmet watch. Because you, there's so much you could take away from this movie regarding colonial wargaming. For a normal movie, it's probably more like a two pith helmet movie because I, I think I'm less inspired now to game Zulus than I was in the 80s because the more I watch it, the more I see a very unfortunate historical piece which shows what happens when you dismiss a people or a force without realistic reasoning. You see what I'm saying? But you can see Zulu Dawn on the Shot and Shield YouTube channel under the Movies of Interest playlist. And I'll have it on there as long as I possibly can. So it's on there if you'd like to see it. That was today's movie review. Hey, what the blaze is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. This is Shot and Shield. And shield. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. This is Shot and Shield. I hear that conditions in your army are appalling. 
Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. Thank you for continuing to listen to Shot and Shield, a podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. A podcast meant to be listened to as you're painting your figs and building your terrain, and I hope you enjoy. As suggested earlier, I'd like to break down wargaming, the scramble for Africa. In this episode's Making the Case. I'm here to do a job, nothing more. You are a name, a file, and a case number. That is all. It's time to make the case. It was at one time called New Imperialism by historians of the time because it marked a new phase in European involvement in areas outside of their traditional zone of influence. I would like to say that uh, I plan on covering just the basics of the scramble for Africa. Uh, so if you're new to the theater, this will be instructive. If you're, if you're not new to the theater, then you might be like, oh, okay, Scott, let's get on with it. All right, but I like to start things right at the base. So when it comes to more historical details, I will leave it to the experts who I will get on the program as soon as possible. First, a little backstory. Prior to the Berlin Conference of 1884, which I will get into in just a moment, Africa was slowly being opened up by the British, the French, and the Portuguese. Other nations really hadn't invested that much in Africa yet. The Spanish a little bit, the Italians a little bit, the Germans just a little bit, but it, it really wasn't like it was the British, the French, and the Portuguese that were the main drivers. And why did these uh, countries want uh, Africa opened up? Because it opened up a market that would garner these countries a trade surplus and provide raw materials needed at home, like ivory, rubber, diamonds, tea, tin, cocoa, and coffee, right? The new German Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, sponsored the 1884 Berlin Conference, which set the rules of effective control of African territories and reduced the risk of conflict between the colonial powers. So if you're a student of European history, you'll know that Bismarck always looked to consolidate his country's position through ensuring there was always a balance of power. The Berlin Conference was a way of preventing colonial interests from causing a European war. Included in the conference was the British, Germans, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italians, Belgians, Turkish, Dutch, Austro-Hungarians, Danish, Swedes, Russians, and Americans. And over the course of a few months, these powers carved up Africa into their zones of influence. The French, the British, the Germans, the Belgians, Spanish, Italians, and Portuguese walked away with the lot except for two independent African nations, Ethiopia and Liberia. The Americans, the Turkish, the Dutch, the Austro-Hungarians, Danish, Swedes, Russians, they're kind of left out. I don't think, uh, from my reading, I don't think they were really interested in being involved in Africa, but I could be wrong. I do know that the Russians, for instance, kind of wanted a foothold in Africa, but kind of didn't really focus on it. Uh, they sent uh, guns and ammunition and stuff like that to uh, to Ethiopia to help them in their fight against Italians. So, ah, uh, who knows? Now, if we're going to talk about gaming the scramble for Africa, we're talking about a lot of different European forces, but also African native forces as well. You got the Zanzibari, Zulu, Moroccan, Modest, Ethiopians, Egyptians, Beja, the Boer, the Maasai, the Anzadi, 
the Libyans, Barbary pirates, Dervish, and the Herreros from Southwest Africa, Bantu region. So gaming the whole scramble for Africa is a huge undertaking. If you plan on gaming the whole, whole deal, uh, let me tell you something. There are figures available for this. In 28mm, which is my focus, so that's what I know, I can think of three companies just off the top of my head. Wargames Foundry, Ascari Miniatures, and Tiger Miniatures. I'm sure there's others, but if you're just if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I wanna I wanna try the scramble for Africa, you know, Foundry, Ascari, and Tiger are a great place to start. And then like I said, I'm sure you'll find others. So if I were to undertake the Scramble for Africa as a project, I will tell you, I would start in South Africa and work up the continent. Seriously, I'd do the British, the Zulus, and the Boers first. Then I would move to Zanzibar, then to Portuguese, the Maasai, the Anzadi, uh, and just keep creeping up Africa as I built my project. The reason I do this, (laughs) hear me out. When I started gaming Central Asia... I wanted to play the great game. So I had British, Afghans, and Russian colonial. And then I started game creep. I was like, well, I need some Kashgaris. I need some Persians. I need some Haratis. I need some Indians and some Sikhs. I need to get some Chinese and some Tibetan and all of a sudden and then t- some Turkish. And all of a sudden I creeped out and all of a- that's how it built. So now I could I could essentially do all of Central Asia and the great game from Turkey all the way to China. And I started out a little bit at a time. So if you plan on gaming the whole of Africa, the whole scramble of Africa, you might want to start out, just a suggestion from me, you might want to start out a little bit at a time. You know, another thing to consider is what kind of game are you going to play? Are you going to play a big game? Are you going to play a small game? Are you going to play a skirmish game? What kind of game are you going to, what kind of rule set are you going to use? Okay. So personally, I would, I would do some sort of skirmish rule set. All right. So I would stick very skirmishy. That way I'm not spending $5 billion on miniatures, but uh, you know what? Blood and Steel from Firelock. There you go. There's a great example. The Men Who Will Be Kings from Osprey. That's a great uh, skirmish game as well. Congo Rules from Foundry. The reason... I personally avoid big games in general. I would avoid big games in Africa is because what do you have? Khartoum, Iswandalana, Adwa, uh, Abu Klia, Omdurman, and then a few conflicts in Ethiopia with the Italians. And, and before you even get going, yes, I probably said those incorrectly. I'm not going to worry about it. You get my drift. I think you could also game thousands of scenarios that could include like animals and disease and weather effects, stuff like that. I think it's safe to say that if you focused strictly on the scramble for Africa, I don't think you game much else in your lifetime. There's a lot going on. Now, before I wrap up this overview, again, this is very, very basic and very, just so, so simplistic. I'm not getting into super detail. And the reason being is Look, if you want to get into super detail, you got to go step by step. You have to talk about uh, the British and the Boer, or the British and the Zulu, the Spanish and the Rif, the Germans versus the Herreros. You have to go very small in each of these little conflicts to talk with detail about them. So discussing the scramble for Africa in a general term, sort of giving an overview, if you've never thought about gaming this, this overview might spark 
that uh, that thought process in your head, in your melon, that says, you know what, maybe I will do the scramble for Africa, but let me do Ethiopians versus Italians. You feeling me? Now, before I wrap up this overview, I'd like to play a clip from a conversation I had with Dr. Bryce regarding his book, Forgotten Victorian Generals. Now, we spoke back in February about General Robert Napier, or Field Marshal Robert Napier. I'm not sure. I can't remember if it was Field Marshal or General, but you get the drift. And his expedition to Ethiopia. Now, I like to play part of that because I think there's a lot of good information there that you can translate and add to your Scramble for Africa information. So here we go. This is a Dr. Bryce and yours truly talking about General Robert Napier. Now, in Abyssinia, here we have a landlocked country. So they have to do a deal with the Egyptian government. And because Egypt is still technically partly under the control of the Ottoman Empire, they have to do a deal with the Ottoman Empire as well to basically loan them a bit of coastland. So a force sails up, uh, a provisional force sails up through the Red Sea, literal. They don't actually know even where they're going to land. This is the, this is the is something that's important to understand. They go there to survey it um, and, and look at where exactly they can land. Um, um, Masawa is the is the first suggestion. It's, it's the obvious place, but it, it just doesn't prove practical enough. So they go along Annesley Bay a bit further to, to, to a place called Zula, and they land there and they decide, well, this isn't great, but it's the best we can do. Um, and they start building uh, a port, uh, basically out of nothing. They build a pier so that they can, so that ships can land stuff straight onto the pier. Uh, so they build this huge stone pier out of nothing, um, so that the ships can come straight in. They don't have to ferry everything in. They just can tie up to the docks, unload. Now, once the stuff's unloaded. They've built a, I believe it goes for about 12 miles, uh, a railway. Now, it's always quoted as being a railway. Technically, I think it's a tramway. Um, but so then stuff is unloaded onto this port, uh, this pier that's been created out of nothing. A railway has been created out of nothing, which takes the stuff further inland to the, to the supply depot. A road has been created out of nothing to take it further inland. You have a whole infrastructure built, as I say, from, from nothing. Um, and it's, it's a triumph of uh, British technology, um, of Western technology as well, because there is some very important equipment you can talk about later, if you like, comes over from the United States, um, which is, is key in dealing with one of the very big problems of the Abyssinian campaign. So it, it, it is just a, an amazing logistical exercise, really, when you it, think it, about it. And it probably it probably helps that Napier is an engineer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the uh, when we were sort of talking beforehand, one of the questions that you sent over to me was uh, how did Napier get put in charge of the Abyssinian expedition? Well, it's actually fortuitous. This ends up with him. Um, but when the British government is trying to figure out how to how to deal with the situation in Abyssinia and a military option looks likely, there's rather a game of pass the parcel uh, in terms of who's going to organise it. So the British government passed it on to the War Office, the War Office passed it on to the Commander-in-Chief at Horse Guards, 
He decides that this is probably going to be better organised from India, so it gets sent over to the Governor General of India. Um, then it passes around all the various commanders. It ends up with with uh, Napier, in, uh, who's the Commander in Chief of the Bombay Presidency Army at the time, and uh, he basically, I mean, he does one slight further bit of pass the parcel. He passes it on to his Quartermaster General. To, to start having a look at. But between them, they sought out how this campaign could possibly be done. Um, and again, and I've, I've hinted at it there, but it is key to remember that this is very much a British and Indian uh, expedition. Um, a large part, I mean, there's, there's just over 13,000 combat troops mm-hmm. used. The vast majority of them come from the Indian Army and are what we would term at the time native troops. Mm-hmm. So the, the actual British army presence is very significant, uh, very insignificant, really, in one sense. There's one one regiment of cavalry, uh, four battalions of infantry, uh, five, I think it's four or five batteries of artillery, and uh, one company of engineers. That's quite small, really. The rest of it, you know, it, it comes from the Indian Army, from the, from the the different presidents, the Indian armies. Um, and I don't know whether your listeners will be aware, but at this period, up until 1895, there are actually three British Indian armies. Uh, there's the Bengal, Bombay, and Madras armies, mm-hmm. and they all play a, a part. The Madras army plays a very insignificant part; it just sends some engineers. Um, but the Bombay and Bengal armies provide a significant part of the manpower for this exercise. Very much an Anglo-Indian uh, expedition. Um, and one, just, just one very interesting little aside. Battle honours from this period for Indian and now Pakistani regiments, most of them are what is technically termed in military speak uh, repugnant, i.e. they've been removed from the colours because they represent campaigns that do not uh, meet the standards of the time. So, for example, Indian mutiny colours, uh, Indian mutiny battle honours, you're not going to find them on modern-day Indian Army and Pakistani Army colours, mm. understandably. Okay. The okay. Abyssinian campaign battle honours, though, will still be found to this day on units of the Indian Army and the Pakistani Army. Um, it's one of those campaigns that's a, very significant, really, for the military history of those two nations. Can I tell you, that's very interesting uh, from the aspect of if you are in the Indian Army or an Indian Army regiment during the Indian Mutiny and you jumped in, pardon expression, on the side of the East India Company, I could see where now that would be like, you know, you're kind of a traitor, you know, yes. so, that they, yeah. so that that would not be something that you'd want on the on the no. on the on the honors list. Exactly. The other thing I want to get into a little bit with this Abyssinia campaign is Napier doesn't yeah. just uh, prove himself to be a, a good field general um, in a traditional sense, an engineer, but also uh, an ambassador, if mm. you will, because he has to make deals with other warlords to be able to, to get yeah. through. You know, could you t- speak about that just a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I mean, he has. Um, he always has a, an interesting approach in, in any sort of negotiations, and, and it's exactly the same in this period. He's sort of like the, um, uh, what's, what's the old saying? Is it the iron fist in the velvet glove? Right. Um, you know, it, he, he, knows, he knows when to, to, to shout and scream, and he knows when to, uh, 
cajole and encourage as well. Um, and he's exactly the same in these sort of negotiations. He knows when to offer things, and and, and obviously there are a lot of um, uh, weapons and equipment, etc., which are handed to friendly chiefs uh, during this period. Most of it quite old by British standards, but reasonably modern by that uh, uh, by the standards of Abyssinia. Um, and obviously, when um, the British leave. Uh, a lot it's not practical to take a lot of the the older military equipment back and, and stores etc cetera, etc cetera. a lot of it's just given to these friendly chiefs who, who helped um so he knew when to sort of you know we don't want to say bribery but when to reward perhaps we should say um and it's a period where yeah he he is is very much tested napier because i mean we talk about the local uh, tribal chiefs, and yes, he obviously is, um, and, and local warlords, he is negotiating with them. He's also technically carrying out diplomatic negotiations with uh, Dudros, the emperor, uh, who has taken the hostages. And he's trying to deal with him in a way that both saves lives, saves money, say, you know, avoids bloodshed, but also at the same time, he knows that there is an expectation upon him um, to, from, from the British government and from British public to expunge this insult, mm -hmm. you know, to, to take out some sort of retribution um, upon Tudros. Uh, so he, he's, he's in a different uh type of, of diplomatic environment uh, one which normally wouldn't be uh, given to a, a, a general um, but there's absolutely no way he can reasonably uh, ask advice from India or even from London um, he has to make the decisions himself and the fact that his decisions are largely um, agreed with uh, you know, it's I think to his credit because there's no great backlash, as in, oh well, the general shouldn't have done this or he shouldn't have done that. Right. Right. Um, no Monday morning well, quarterbacking, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh well, well, yes, exactly. I mean, and the biggest, the biggest uh, sort of criticism of the campaign is the cost, which is is vastly over what was expected. Um, I think initially two two million pounds was was voted for the expedition, and then provision for six hundred thousand pounds a month after that. So they were probably looking at about four million pounds um, for the cost. It, it's well over eight million at the, the final count. Um, that's not really Napier's fault. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that. Um, uh, shipping from from India was not as efficient as people thought it was going to be. Um, ships had to stay on station, particularly those that were um, under charter, had to stay on station off the Abyssinian camp coast during the campaign for longer than was expected um, because they were required. And I can actually, you know, I will go in, in into a little bit why these modern ship, ships that were chartered from uh, private companies needed to stay off the coast. And one of the, the key reasons is because they're so modern, they've got uh, um, uh, 
uh, desalinization, uh, water uh, producing um, pumps on board. So they're turning seawater into drinking water. And obviously, you know, as you can imagine, this, this campaign, um, one of the key things is water. Right. It's a huge requirement for, for water. I mean, if you think about it, we're talking about, and I can just give you roughly the figures, as I say, you know, we talked about 13,000 uh, combat troops. There's at least 30,000 camp followers and workers on top of that. Then you're talking about 18,000 mules and ponies. You're talking about probably 5,000 horses, uh, over 5,000 camels, about 2,000 um, donkeys, uh, 8,000 bullocks. Um, there's even 40 elephants out there as well. Now, if you think about all this, think of the amount of fresh water they need right. per day. Uh, it, it's astronomical. Um, the animals alone, it's estimated, require 150 to 200,000 gallons of water per day. That's just you know, astronomical figures. But even for the uh, for the humans, um, it's over 60,000. So you're looking at a total fresh water per day requirement of between 200 uh, and 260,000 gallons of water. That's, that's just enormous. How do you produce that? Well, this is where the technology comes in. There's ships in the harbour producing between 50 and 100,000 uh, gallons per day. There's two land-based uh, water condensers producing 12,000 or so gallons a day. And then there's a hugely successful thing that's brought in from America, which is the Norton patented tube wells. And there's a hundred of them brought in and they're, they're wonderful because they can bore into the hardest rock and then pump up water, fresh water so quickly. Uh, they're an absolutely magnificent uh, part of it. There's also um, pumps brought in and miles and miles of, of copper um, uh, tubing so that they can pump water down from the hills uh, at, at Zula to, to the bay. Um, so pumping down fresh water. I mean, it, it's just an astronomical uh, amount of things that needed to be done just in that regard just to allow enough water for everyone to live. Um, you know, if, and, it, and it's the technology that does that. And it's the technology that allows that to be achieved. I mean, yes, there's a fair degree of organizational skill um, and stuff like the, uh, the Norton uh, patented tubes. It was Napier who specifically asked for them to be sent out. It was Napier who asked for the, uh, the water pumps to be sent out so they could pump water down from the hills. Um, and then going back to, you know, obviously I've gone off a little bit there, but going back to the original point, this is one of the factors that creates a huge amount of cost mm -hmm. in that the most modern ships in the harbour are the ones that have these uh, water condensers. And they're the ones that are on charter from private companies because the Indian government, British government ships, transports of this period are quite old and they don't have the latest technology by and large. So you're looking at them having to keep these uh, chartered ships, some of them from, from P&O, um, and they need to be there because if they're not there, 
people are going to, to, to die because there's not sufficient amounts of water. And so they have to be kept on charter at a great cost to the exchequer to allow the campaign to go on. Now, that's not something that's necessarily Napier's fault. You know, he wasn't dealing with the contracts for the shipping. That was right. the government of India or, or the British government. So, yeah, but, you know, th there are huge costs involved in this expedition. But by and large, I think most people consider that it was it was worth it for a sense of, you know, what price honour. Um, um, in, in this case, in this case, over eight, eight million pounds. And the, the the cost is one thing, and then the infrastructure is the other. Once once mm -hmm. that's all said and done, now he has to get to Magdala yeah. to rescue <clears throat> these hostages. I, I think I read that uh, a couple of the hostages were freed, but the majority of the hostages were still were still being held. And by the time by the time um, Napier got to Magdala, I think the uh, the warlord I forget uh, I. Can't pronounce his name very well. Is it Duras? Tudros. 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 Now that's how I say it. I may be wrong. Um, also, during the uh, the period we're talking about, most Victorian commentators call him Theodore. He was known as the Emperor Theodore, which is the is the anglicized version of his name, basically. So he he gets to. <clears throat> uh, in this case, I'll go with Theodore also because it's easier to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no. <laughs> so Emperor Theodore gets to Magdala maybe a couple of days before before um, Napier gets there. Well, yes and no. Um, he he has escaped. Well, he has taken his hostages to Magdala because this Magdala is his mountain fortress. It's four hundred miles inland. <clears throat> he knows it's going to be very difficult for anyone to get to, so he's got his hostages there. Now, what he actually does is <clears throat> a few days before Napier arrives. He comes out to try and meet Napier with his army, and this is where we get the uh, the Battle of Irogi, um, which is the only significant uh, battle as opposed to a siege during the campaign. And after this point, after he loses the Battle of Irogi, uh, Theodore goes back to, to Magdala, and at this point he, he realises the game is up. He actually originally tries to um, commit suicide, uh, using a pistol that was presented to him as a gift by Queen Victoria. Uh, but the pistol fails to go off and he doesn't kill himself. And he's then trying to figure out a way to to deal with this. And so he then releases all the hostages. <clears throat> now, perhaps we should just briefly explain that these hostages were a mixture. There was the uh, British um, consul uh, who had been under arrest for, for numerous years. Um, there were other various officials and diplomats who had been sent. There were a number of Christian missionaries of various nationalities. There were also a number of workers of numerous nationalities. Um, these were not all, by any stretch of the imagination, British nationals or, or even citizens of the empire who were or subjects of the empire who were under hostage. Um, there were numerous nationalities there. Now, one of the things, and I say most of them, a lot of them were people who had skills that were required by the emperor, um, the emperor Theodore. One of the things with, with Theodore to remember, and I don't want to talk too much about, about him necessarily, is um, that he, he comes to power 
in Abyssinia as very much a modernizing man. He wants to take, uh, he wants to bring Abyssinia forward in terms of technology. To do this, he needs people with the knowledge and the ideas. So there's lots of workers brought in from Europe to build up this sort of technology, weapons technology, but not just weapons technology. Uh, this wider system of, of trying to modernize the, the country. Um, and so there are a huge, not a huge number, but there is a, a significant number of European people within Abyssinia and not just workers, their families as well. And these are all the people who have been taken hostage. Now, after the Battle of Virogi, uh, knowing that the game is up, he releases all the hostages. Now, this goes slightly back to your point earlier about Napier and the di diplomatic side of it. Technically, once the hostages have all been released and they're back with Napier, it's mission over. Right. In theory, you know, he has all the hostages back. And he does seriously consider um, withdrawing at that point. Part of the problem is, by this stage, it's very clear that they can't trust um, the emperor, Emperor Theodore, because he has gone back on his word numerous times. He's, he's said one thing, done another. There's a great deal of suspicion, and Napier knows that, right, okay, he might be saying, yes, here's the hostages, go away in peace. But the next day he could be sending an army uh, after him or he could disrupt his lines of communication as he's trying to go back to the coast. There's also an element where he knows that there has been uh, an insult. And as I say, you know, the, the, the price of honour, uh, that he needs to remove. There's also an element where, you know, Napier's decided there needs to be re regime, regime, regime change. Sorry, I couldn't say that then. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, they need to get rid of uh, Theodore. Um, and so there is the final, there is the siege and attack of the fortress of Magdala. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. I don't want to interrupt you. But at this no, point, sure. though, he, yeah, as, as he's gotten the hostages back, he's considering leaving. Is In the back of his mind, he has to figure that newspapers back in England, if they don't see smoke yeah. coming from his his uh, exactly. Theodore's fortress, it could be considered a failure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he does have that pre pressure upon him and, you know, he, he has to make the decision and it's a very hard decision to make in many respects because he's also, he's up against time because he wants to get back to the coast before, uh, before the climate changes, uh, before the rainy season, he's running out of time at this point. And he's either facing a choice where he has to leave fairly soon or he's going to face the possibility of having to um, stay for the season at Magdala, neither of which um, is, is particularly a good choice to have to make. He doesn't want to leave immediately because he knows, as you just said, you know, that uh, if he doesn't uh, destroy Magdala, it could be argued that he, he'd, he'd failed. Uh, he also knows at the same time that to stay and winter there um, would stretch his supply lines considerably, mm. um, which are already in danger. There's also the possibility that uh, relatively friendly uh, chiefs at this moment in time might decide to turn against him and start raiding his supply lines. 
always a distinct possibility, uh, or that followers of um, the Emperor Theodore may well as well. And it's so it's it's a really difficult position he's in in many respects. Uh, and he he also knows that taking Magdala will not be uh, the easiest of tasks. He struggles. He does manage to get some of his mountain guns into position to fire on the on the, the defences. Um, but not really to, to do any significant damage. Because of the, uh, the location of it and the, the topography, it's very difficult to do that. Also, he has no choice. The only entrance to the fortress is along a causeway. He has to launch a frontal attack with the possible you know, uh, lot large losses of life that that could entail. As it happens, there aren't any um, to any significant degree. And the, actually, the, the taking of the fortress of Magdala is an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, the engineers get to the gates with the powder bags to blow the gates, but they've forgotten to bring the fuses with them. And so they're stuck outside the gates, not able to, to break through. Fortunately, there's a couple of soldiers on, um, on hand, uh, Privates Bergen and uh, Magna, both Irishmen who uh, take an initiative and managed to find a bit of the defences where the uh, the defences the wall is quite low. They managed to, with their bayonets, uh, knock the uh, thorns, which had been placed on the top, like a sort of a natural barbed wire. And then they managed to get themselves up. And whilst one of them helps up other soldiers, the other lays down covering fire. And they managed to basically get sufficient soldiers over the wall that way. Then they can go through and open the gates. Um, and that's how Magdala falls. And the, and the two privates I mentioned are both uh, given the Victoria Cross for their um, for their actions during the battle. Um, you know, it's a remarkable little story attached to the campaign. But, uh, you know, I suppose there is a sense in which, both with this and with the Battle of Irogi, that Napier is quite fortunate. Um, there's, there's a bit of luck there. Once again, that was a clip from my talk with Dr. Bryce from the February 2022 Supercast about his book, Forgotten Victorian Generals. I have to get Dr. Bryce uh, back on the program again. Great conversation. Uh, so, and what a great guy, really. And it, go to, here's a, here's a tip. You want to find out more about Scrabble of Africa or any of the topics that uh, get discussed on the show, go to Hellion and Company. And look for their Muskets to Maxim series of books. There is a huge range of books there. And I'm going to try to get some more of the authors on here. I have to get Gurinder Singh Man. I got to get Gurinder back on here to talk about his new book. It just came out in May. And so really, here's what I need you to do. Okay. You want to know more about the Scramble for Africa or anything that we talk about? Go to Hellion Company Press. It's not an ad. This is, I, I know that there's some great information there. So nobody's paying me to do this. I'm just saying this is good information for you. All right. So to sum up, there's a lot of companies out there that make figures for colonial Africa. And if you're thinking about breaking out into scrambling for Africa, I suggest baby steps just a little bit at a time because you don't want to have like this pile of lead in front of you and be overwhelmed, right? Okay. Still ahead, looking at the new top five next on Shot and Shield.
This is Shot and Shield. Hurry ho, pip pip from Bernard's your uncle. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out in parentheses, shot and shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, shot and shield and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. And the Lord spake saying, shalt thou count to three, no more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. It is time for the top five reveal. Five is right up. So before I debut the new top five, let's look at last episode's top five, which really wasn't a top five, but more of a qualitative question that friend of the podcast, Wargaming's own Bon Vivant, Claude Bailey and I discussed on the September Supercast. But here's the email, and it reads, Duke Scott, I and my Wargame group love listening to your show. Thank you. Most of us do listen as we paint. So thank you. Thank you. I was wondering if you've ever bet on wargaming. Now, that was the initial email. That was it. Just just Oh like wow, that. okay. Yeah. So that was that was the initial email. Just that alone. I was wondering if you've ever bet on wargaming. So all these things come to mind, you know, I'm thinking to myself, why is there like a line, you know, that in Vegas that I can go and, you know, put down some cash <laughs> on some more, you know, what are you talking about? You know, I, so it, I didn't understand, like, I kind of didn't understand the question. It, it seems like a very precise question, but kind of vague also. So mm-hmm. um, I replied to him and asked him uh, some questions since this is the first time I've ever heard of this gambling and a war gaming. What? Um, so I asked him uh, if he did. And how it takes place. And here's his reply. Scott, it's weird that you've never heard of that before because we've been doing it for years. We run it like other people run a poker night. We all pitch in five bucks and the winner gets the pot. We just used your new scenario scramble. Oh, cool. That you had on your Haitian episode. It's a lot of fun and kind of adds a little more to the action. Does that answer your question? Yes, it, it does answer my question. Kind of. But, but, but Claude, how? <laughs> I just. So, so I, you know what surprises me is that he's surprised that we've never heard of it. <laughs> I never thought about that. I just, does that make sense? Because yes, I've, I've I, never. It, I mean, you and I are both of a, men, gentlemen of a certain age. Right. Who have been, you know, pretty involved in wargaming uh, in one way or another for many, many years. Absolutely. And, so, and, and obviously we know dozens, if not hundreds of people that are that. And I've never, ever, ever heard of it. Right. The dust of the surprise, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So the question was, <laughs> how do you feel about gambling on wargaming? And this is, this is how it flushed out. 70% of you said you never thought about it, which is cool. You joined myself and Wargaming's own bon vivant, Claude Bailey, in that, as you heard. 
16% of you said gambling on war games is not a good idea. And I have to tell you, I kind of feel the same way. 6% of you said you don't gamble on war gaming. <laughs> so 70% said, no, I've never thought about it. 6% of you said, no, I don't do that. Is it really 6%? <laughs> we'll see. And finally, 8% of you said you do gamble on wargaming. <laughs> Who are you guys? <laughs> so you're going to go to Vegas, going to put down, a, I got some Aztecs fighting some conquistadors. I think I'll put a 20 on it. <laughs> Can I tell you, my favorite comment came from friend of the podcast, John Clark, who said, and he posted this, this is hysterical. He said, I gamble on my wife not killing me every time I get Wargame stuff through the post. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, John. All right, so let's move on to the new question for this episode. Staying with the theme, the scramble for Africa. The question is, if you were to start gaming Africa, which conflict would you start with? Now, the poll is on the Shot and Shield podcast Wargaming group right now. So go let your voice be heard. If there's something on there that you that you don't see, in other words, I got my list on there. But if you see something that you're like, okay, well, you know, Scott, he didn't put this on there, and this is what I would do, then put it on there. Add it, okay? Coming up next, we're going to go old time and dig into the audio vault. This is Shot and Shield. And it's going to hurt you a lot more than it will me, I'm happy to say. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Discipline makes the strength of armies. Shot and Shield. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. waiting for come on come on shot and shield your colonial wargaming podcast the 19th century ended amid the glories of the victorian era shot and shield a podcast dedicated to wargaming the colonial era in those aristocratic victorian days when as disraeli said the world was for the few and for the very few the views expressed during shot and shield are the hosts and only meant to be taken seriously if you feel it's necessary. Good luck against those elephants. In this episode's audio discovery, it's a classic African story from 1885 and the imagination of H. Ryder Haggard as condensed by the General Mills Adventure Theater, King Solomon's Mine on Shot and Shield. Today... The spotlight of the world glares brightly on the continent of Africa. Newspapers and television and radio tell us what happens there every day. Nothing is hidden. 
But 100 years ago, Africa was known as the Dark Continent, a land which hid its secrets in the depths of a mysterious jungle. Only an explorer and big game hunter like Alan Quatermain could possibly find his way through the twisting jungle trails. Only through his sharp eyes can we experience the great adventure of King Solomon's Mines. I had just made camp at the edge of the jungle when two strangers approached. Alan Quatermain, I believe. I'm Sir Henry Curtis, and this is my friend, Captain John Good, late of the Royal Navy. Sir Henry and I have come to Africa to find his brother, George Curtis, who has not been heard from for three years. We've been told that you were the last white man to see him. Oh, indeed? Well, that's rather strange. Now, wait a moment. Sir Henry, did your brother have your deep-set gray eyes? Yes. His last letter, three years ago, mentioned he was off to make his fortune in a place called King Solomon's Mines. Ah, yes, 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 I remember it all. There is an old story that far into the mountains there is a mine where the ancient King Solomon acquired a treasure trove of diamonds. Your brother told me he would find it or die in the attempt. Well, is there such a place? Ah, who knows. But I did have a map of the supposed location. I gave your brother a copy. Off he went, and I've never seen him since. But you still have your map. Well, it must be somewhere among my papers in this trunk. Oh, yes, yes, here it is. Well, yes, it's a map, all right, but it seems to be marked out on a very old and odd piece of cloth. It was given me ten years ago by a Portuguese gentleman, Silvestre. We found him dying at the edge of the desert. In his delirium, he raved about unsuccessfully searching for the mines. In the last gasp of sanity, he gave me this map, saying it had belonged to another ancestor 300 years before. This ancestor, another Sylvester, had seen the mines, but died in the mountains while trying to return. And you never looked for a mine yourself? Oh, sir, I had better things to do than to follow a dying man's rambling dream. <laughs> Mr. Quatermain, will you lead us to the mines? Sir, crossing an unknown desert under a blazing sun and climbing the highest mountains in Africa sounds more like suicide to me. Look, sir, I'm a rich man. I'll pay you well, and if we do find diamonds, you and John Good can share it all. But we are going, with you or without you. Very well, Sir Henry. I'll go. But more to save your skins than line my pockets. We'll need a week to organize the expedition. By the seventh day, we had hired enough porters, but still lacked a strong man to carry our guns. As I was loading our cartridge belts with bullets, a voice spoke behind us. Hail, Omaku Mazan, watcher in the night. Thy prayers are answered. I have come to carry the gun. Uh, not so fast. Who are you? I am called Mbopa, a warrior of the Zulu nation. A warrior with a lying tongue? You are too bold. Go elsewhere and carry another man's burdens, not ours. Oh, I say, Quarterman. Why not hire him? He looks strong. He's as tall and brawny as I. Aye, golden-bearded lord. We are men. You and I. Why does a warrior wish to be a porter? Because I have heard you will cross a great desert and climb snow-covered mountains and seek a strange country. I say, did him come? He looks like a useful man. Very well, Sir Henry. It's your expedition. Thank you, Mbopa. You will come with us. I will serve you well. 
We trekked for more than 500 miles before we came to the edge of the great desert. It was in the second week in May when we arrived, and the sun burned in the sky like a monstrous red-hot coal. Far in the distance, we could see the threatening outlines of the jagged Solomon Mountains, which we would have to climb if we ever lived through the desert. You know, Curtis, I've lived my life on the sea and never had an uncomfortable day. The sight of those swirling sand dunes makes me positively seasick. If I were you, I'd worry more about drinking water. Only one cup a day for each of us. According to the map, there is a water hole in the middle of the desert 60 miles away. If we find it, we will find it. Have no fear. We decided to travel at night and rest in the daytime. But resting under a hot sun was almost impossible. Battalions of flies attacked us and covered us in a black cloud. We traveled 60 miles, but no sign of the water hole. Quarterman, I'm afraid we've run out of water. The heat seems to have evaporated it. Then we shall all be dead before the moon rise tomorrow. on as best we could, and when we could walk no longer, we fell on the sand like dead men. We slept, never expecting to ever wake up again, but when the sun came up the next morning, I felt my body being shaken. Marco Mazan, I do not choose to wake the others. I have searched in the night by moonlight, and I have found the water hole. Umbopa. I owe you an apology. You saved our lives. Thank me not for saving lives. I treasure. We filled our flasks with water and continued on our way across the desert. Somehow it felt easier now. And seven days later at noon, we reached the foothills of the mountains. We were too relieved to be frightened by the jagged rocks that seemed to tear into the sky. I shot an antelope, which Umbopa roasted over a fire. We gorged ourselves. And when finally we felt strong enough, we started to climb the mountains. The higher we climbed, the colder it grew. Oh, courage. The next time we go on an expedition, let's head for the North Pole. Probably much warmer there. By the time we had reached halfway up the mountain, the sun set and we thought we would freeze to death. But luckily, the sharp-eyed Umbapa saved our lives again. Behold! There is a cave here. Let us crawl into it and sleep safely through the night. We huddled together to be warm and slept deeply. When morning came and I awoke, I accidentally flung my arm outward and touched a cold hand. The strange figure of an oddly dressed man, his head resting on his knees. Sir Henry. Uh, Captain Gordon. Uh, uh, wake up, wake up. Look. Oh, is it my brother who sits there? Did? Oh, I hardly think so, Curtis. Your brother did not wear clothes in the style of 300 years ago. Well, then, 
Who can it be? Can't you guess? It's the old Sylvester whose 300-year-old map we have been following. The freezing cold has preserved his body all these years. And look at that pointed bone in his hand. At the wound in his forearm. He drew our map with his blood. God rest his soul. We paid our respects to the gallant old gentleman and climbed to the top of the mountain. Look, Quatermain, we're in luck. The mountain slopes away gently on its other side and it's covered with tall grass. Ha! I've never seen anything more beautiful or peaceful in my life. Look, uh, what the blazes? Someone just threw that spear at me. A group of armed warriors suddenly burst from behind the trees and threatened us with long, sharp spears. Despite my fears for our lives, I noticed that these men were tall and tan-colored, all of them resembling our friend Umbopa. And there was no time to think any more about that. The strangers advanced, pointing their spears at us. The guns we aimed at them did not frighten them. Evidently, they had never seen a rifle before. It looked like curtains for us. Strangers, who are you? Where do you come from? We are visitors, old man. From the greatest, brightest star in the sky that shines at night. You have offended us. You shall be punished. Be merciful, I beg of you. We did not know you were men of such great importance. My little exaggeration having seemed to work, I decided to embroider a bit more. A wicked-looking buzzard had just landed on a treetop. Look you upon that bird who comes only when death is near. My magic tube will speak the words of death to him, and he will scavenge no more. Shall my magic tube speak death to you, old man, if you do not obey us? We will obey. Oh, children from the great star. It is well. Now tell us who you are. I am Infardus. General of the army of Twala, king of Lukuana. Twala, the one-eyed. Twala, the terrible. Then let us hasten to meet him. Our friends have marched through the burning hell of the desert and climbed the sharp teeth of the mountain. What other dangers must they face? King Twala the Terrible? I must say he doesn't sound very friendly. Well, we'll find out when I return shortly with Act Two. The General Mills Radio Adventure Theater will return shortly. What is an adventure? A question for which men sometimes give their lives to find the answer. Was there actually a diamond mine where King Solomon acquired his wealth so many thousands of years ago? Is the answer yes, no, or death? Soon we came to the great city of Lou. 
the gates swung open. And we entered the great clearing, which was encircled by thousands of fierce armed warriors with great feathered headdresses which swayed in the breeze. There appeared out of a great thatched house a gigantic figure of a man dressed in a magnificent tiger skin. He had one gleaming, baleful eye. Where the second eye should have been was a deep hollow. It was the cruelest face I'd ever seen. By his side hobbled a tiny, monkey-like woman, a frightening bundle of rags. Let the strangers approach my royal presence. White people, whence come you? What seek you? Greeting, Swala, king of the Kukwanas. We come from the stars. We come to see this land. You come from afar to see a little thing. They die, O oh king. They seek the white shining stone of the ancient king. <laughs> they die. monkey-like woman now sprang in front of us. Gagula, the royal sorceress of King Twala, a hideous-looking creature with a face no bigger than a child's, but covered with countless deep and yellow wrinkles. Heaven only knows how old she was. What say you to Gagula's words? Do you seek the bright stones? We have heard of them and would see them. If you truly come from the stars, that man with you, does he also come from the stars? Why, George Quatermain is pointing at Umbopa. It is true, O King. There are people of your color who come from the heavens above as well. Beware, O Twara, and heed what I prophesy. Kill! And you shall be with... The white strangers? They are off, no matter. But the brown man, who looked like a man of the Kukwana, him you must kill. Or you die. His life for you. Quarterman, they mean to kill you, Bopa. Calmly does it, Sir Henry. Let us all aim our guns at the king's heart. It is for... Tubes, O King. They are instruments of magic that speak with the voice of death. Ah, lies! Oh, white man, speak the truth, O King. Myself, I saw magic tube speak death to a great bird of prey. In Vados, take the strangers and make them comfortable in thy house. They have come far. Now let them rest. And tomorrow at noon we shall meet again at the great witch hut. Oh, visitors from the stars, you are welcome in the land of Kukwanas. Farewell, and fear not. No harm shall come to you here. I would sooner trust a pair of cobras than Trala and Gagula. I thank my three friends for my life. I shall repay. No need, my friend. I say I shall repay. I shall repay a million times. No. What do you suppose you meant by that? I haven't the faintest notion. 
Let's go to the house of Infados and rest. Tomorrow sounds like a big day. It was a relief to be under a roof again after so many months in open country. Infados did his best to make us comfortable. Let my house be your house, O lords, from afar. And let not the rudeness of Twala make you think that we Kukonas are savages like our cruel king. But what is this uh, witch hunt to which we've been invited? Uh, another of Twala's cruelties. No man's life will be safe. Twala fears his people will someday rebel against him. And thus, once a month, he orders Gagula to smell out all men who are a threat to him. And then he has them killed. You mean the accused men are killed without trial by jury? I know not the meaning of these strange words. But this I do know. Tomorrow, I too may be killed. I am Twala's half-brother. I am too of royal blood. Then why not get rid of Twala and rule in his stead? Alas, I am too old. And if Twala died, he would be succeeded by his son, Skraga, whose heart is blacker than his father's. Is there no one else? There is one... But alas, I fear he is dead. And, uh... Once our rightful king... This is all very confusing, Infados. What happened to all these people? Why are they dead? Uh, ask Twala. Imotu was his twin brother and ruled as a just and gentle king. But Twala plotted against him and had him killed. Imotu's wife fled the country with her infant son, Ignosi. They were never heard of again. If the infant, Ignosi, had survived, he would now be our rightful king instead of the monster, Twala. But alas, he is dead. How do you know? Ignosi is dead. What mean you, Umbopa? Listen to me. I will tell you a story. You say her mother and her child fled from the land of the Kukwanas. It was said they died upon the mountain. Is it not so? It is truly so. Not truly so. First they crossed the mountain. Then the mother died. But the son, Ignosi, lived. <gasps> he was found and adopted by a tribe of Zulu and grew up to be a great warrior. For years, he planned how he might return to Kukwanaland and become its rightful king. For long years, he waited for the right time to come. Then, at last, he met certain white men, and with them he crossed the desert and climbed the snow-clad mountain and came home at last to his native land. What mad talk is this? It is the truth, I tell. For I am Ignosi, rightful king of the Kukwanas. Are you then my beloved nephew, Ignosi, whom I have mourned for dead these many years? Even so, my uncle. 
I bow to thee as my true and rightful king. Well, I'm speechless. Congratulations. Twala must go then. For now you have the rightful king to take his place. I, I will go now and speak to my fellow generals. And we will raise a rebellion against Twala. We can muster 10,000 soldiers to Twala's 20,000. But with right on our side, we will conquer. But wait. Why do you hesitate, Infados? Do you not believe I am Ignosi? I believe. But will the others? Ah. We need a sign. You are wise. We must think of a sign. Well, now, I've just thought of something. <laughs> Would an eclipse of the sun be an impressive enough sign? Have you gone out of your mind, Captain Good? No, but I seem to remember reading in my almanac that an eclipse was due to occur in Africa about this time of year. Now, wait a minute. I have the almanac in my pocket somewhere. Navy man is never without one. And uh, what's today's date? I believe it's uh, July 19th. Splendid. Listen to this. On July 20th at half past noon, an eclipse of the sun will occur in longitude 60 and latitude 120. We're in the right spot. Yes. Infados, you shall have your sign tomorrow. One half hour after the witch hunt starts. The next day, just before noon, we arrived at the great clearing. It was closely packed with some 20,000 warriors. Twala signaled. Ten giant warriors with great sharp spears took their places behind Gagula, who carried a stick with a rattling gourd at one end. Gagula scampered along the ranks of the warriors, her fierce eyes seeking out her first victim. And then suddenly she stopped in front of a trembling soldier and shook her wand in his face. <coughs> Quartermain, what time is it? Twenty-five minutes past twelve. Five more minutes to the eclipse. Oh, not a single cloud in the sky. Look, Quartermain. Gagula is working her way toward us. And I don't think it's a mistake. Better get our guns ready. Gagula stood directly in front of us. The ten executioners behind her. She came up to me, shook her head and laughed. She stared at Sir Henry and shook her head. She stepped up to Captain Good and shook her head. And then she stopped in front of Umbopa, or rather, Ignosi. No, you will not kill our servant. You, Twala, shall die first. White strangers. You go too far. I say to my soldiers, kill. Then you, Twala, shall also be killed. Let all my warriors surround the white men and kill them. <laughs> uh, how shall you kill me when 20,000 of my men stand between us? Wait. Look at the sun. We looked. A fingernail of darkness was creeping over the edge of the sun. The almanac had been right. Look, O king. You have offended us, and now we will punish you. 
Look at the sun. See how night is swallowing it. Swallowing it up to darkness. Did you listen to the lying white man? It will pass. It will pass. Aye, the night will pass over the sun. And it shall shine no more. Oh, no. see, it is your uncle in Fadus. Dusk is falling. Do you and your white friends steal away now to the hill outside the city? Ten thousand loyal soldiers wait there to fight for your throne. Come, I will lead you there. Give us back our sun, stranger from the stars, and I will spare your lives. Too late, Twala! Too late! You are doomed! Three men set out to find a missing person. Instead of finding him, they find themselves involved in a battle for a man's throne. The hours before a battle are strange ones, filled with wild dreams and questions. Who will live to see another day? It's also a time of waiting. But you won't have to wait long. Act three will be here shortly. General Mills Radio Adventure Theater will return shortly. A small army has been known to defeat a great army, but great armies have been known to destroy small armies. So what is the secret of victory? Bravery? Who knows? History doesn't play by any set of rules. With each battle, it throws a new set of dice. What are the odds? Twala's 20,000 warriors against Alan Quartermain's 10,000. Are the odds too great? We did not sleep that night. There was too much to do. Since we were camped on a hill, we had the advantage. We ordered huge boulders rolled to the top of the hill... Twala's men would be hard put to reach the top of our hill. We divided the men into three columns. Captain Good commanded on the left, I on the right, and Ignacy and Sir Henry, our best fighters, were in charge of the center. Here they would take the heaviest thrust of the battle. The Grey Regiment, the bravest men in Kukwana land, had volunteered for this position. Twala and his army were marching toward us. The rising sun made the forest of spears sparkle so brightly the glare hurt my eyes. And frankly, I was also frightened. Hunting is my business, not war. Twala came to a halt and raised his hand, which held a gigantic battle axe. His army stopped. There was a deadly silence. White strangers, I offer you mercy. Give up your servant who calls himself a king. And I will spare your life. Take a shot over him, Quatermain. That's your answer. If that is your answer, then I will reward you all with a gift. Death! The enemy split in half, one part attacking on our left, the other on our right. The wily Twala was trying to outflank us. We ordered the boulders roll down on the attackers. But when our supply ran out, we engaged in hand-to-hand combat. 
all through the day, the fierce battle raged. First we forced the attackers down the hill, then they regrouped and pushed us up the hill, back and forth through the portions of war. And all this time, the gray regiment stood quietly in the center, never raising a hand. Their leaders, Curtis and Ignacy, were calmly waiting for the right moment to strike. The sun was low in the sky when the moment came. Suddenly, caught by surprise, the survivors of Thomas' army ran headlong from the fight. The gray regiment pursued and attacked them as they ran. And just as twilight was about to fall, the battle ended. When we awoke the next morning, a sad stillness hovered over yesterday's battleground. Surrounded by his guard, Ignosi, the new king, came to greet us. Hail, my brother. Hail, my friends. Hail, O king. It is time I repaid my debt to you. You owe us nothing. Yet will I still repay. Did I not promise you the white stones? You shall have them. We must speak to the witch, Gaguda, for only she knows the secret place where they may be found. I I shall take them to the secret place, and they shall curse the day they enter, for their precious white stone may be found only in the bony fingers of death. White men, are you prepared to enter the place of death? Ready. We looked where Gagula waited for us. There was a blank stone wall behind her. <laughs> the way is here, my lord. I see no door. Do not jest with us. I do not jest. See, my fingers touch the secret place. <laughs> And suddenly, the wall behind her rose to the roof of the cave. A giant door weighing tons of stone. <laughs> enter, enter, white man from the stars. Here, light this other damp, and behold, the stones you seek. Open the treasure chest and feast your eyes. Good. I can't believe it. Seven great chests filled to the brim with diamonds. <laughs> Gather them up in your hands. Eat them. Drink them. Joke on them. Diamonds worth millions of pounds. We are surely the richest men in the world. Stop her. Gagula's escaping. No, you don't, Gagula. You stay with us. I will go. And you will escape. She broke away from me and tried to scramble through the descending stone door. Gagula struggled to escape the door, which was pressing down on her. But it was too late. Well, gentlemen, Gagula has had the last laugh. We're trapped. Nonsense. All we have to do is find the secret lever and raise the door again. Only Gagula knew where it was, and she lies crushed beneath the stone door. Gentlemen, we may as well face it. We are buried alive. Just then, our lamps spluttered out. We were trapped in the darkness of a living tomb. Gagula had had her revenge. Well, I won't give up that easily. How many matches have we left? 
three. All right, strike one. Let's see the lay of the land. Well, I, uh, I don't see any tunnels leading out. Oh, wait a moment. Don't you notice the flame flickering away from us? There must be a draft coming from somewhere behind us. And let's turn around and follow it. Perhaps it'll lead us to some sort of opening. Ooh, ha! The match is burnt out. We'll strike another. Quickly, let's follow the draft of air. Oh, blast. There goes the second match. Strike another. No, 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 it's our last. We'd better save it. Besides, the blast of air is getting stronger. <laughs> what was that? Well, I, uh, I tripped over something. Uh, we groped in the darkness for the place where good had fallen. Our hands traced the outline of something round. Had we found a trap door? I uh, feel an iron ring in the center. That's what I probably tripped over. Uh, let's pull at it. All right. All right. Uh, come on. It's coming. Keep tugging. It's open. Feel that blast of air? All right. Light the last match, Quarterman. Right. Look. A stone stairway leading down. Come on, let's go. Oh, there's a light straight ahead. There. Yes. The light grew brighter and brighter as we approached it. Now we could see blue sky. We crawled through the hole through which the light was coming. And as we stood up, we saw Infantos nervously pacing up and down. He caught sight of us. Oh, oh, my lords, my lords, you live. You have come back from the dead. Oh, blessed be the kind spirits that dwell in the sky. What's left to tell? We bade farewell to Ignosi, who supplied us with men to guide us back to the outside world. And then, wonder of wonders, when we approached an oasis on the third day, we saw a white man with an enormous black beard limping towards us. It was Sir Henry's long-lost brother. It seems that two years before, on his way to King Solomon's Mountains, a boulder had crushed his leg. The leg mended very slowly. He had lived on the oasis for two years, waiting to be rescued. Well, Curtis, it's been quite an adventure. You found your brother. We helped Umbopa regain his rightful throne. And... Yes, but we don't have a single diamond to prove we found King Solomon's mind. Now, wait a moment. I just remembered something. When we discovered that blessed draft of fresh air in the cave, just as we started to follow it, I... Scooped up a handful of diamonds. What? And stuck them in the pocket of my jacket. <laughs> Rather silly, wasn't it? Oh, silly, my foot. Do you still have that jacket? Well, let's see. Ah, yes. Here it is. Ha-ha! The diamonds, gentlemen. Look! Well, Quartermain, you've enough diamonds there to make you and Captain Good rich for life. I want none of it. Well, we'll share it with your brother. Is that all right with you, Captain? Well, by all means. And uh, what was it Shakespeare said? All's well that ends well. Well, as I said before, truth is stranger than fiction. But in our story, truth was also slower than fiction. 
Nobody before had ever suspected that diamonds were to be found in Africa. Ten years after this story was written, the Kimberley Mines were discovered in South Africa, the greatest diamond mine in the world. Out of fantasy had emerged reality. And that was the General Mills Adventure Theater's rendition of King Solomon's Mine by H. Ryder Haggard. And thus concludes another episode of Shot and Shield, a podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming, a podcast meant to be listened to as you paint your figs and build your terrain. I'd like to thank Wargaming's very own Bon Vivant, Claude Bailey, and Dr. Bryce, the author of Forgotten Victorian Generals from Hellion and Company Publishers, for their virtual participation in clips from previous shows. And I'd like to once again thank Edgar Pabon, Damian McComer, and Gary Morales for a wonderful game of Blood and Steel from Firelock Games at Huracan 2022. You've been listening in Dublin, Ireland, Sydney, Australia, and Kalamazoo, Michigan. I am the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida, about to be flooded out. I'm out. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity. 